at the Center for Education Research and Innovation, we're in the habit of asking questions that matter and looking for answers that impact. But how do you do that? How does a researcher get to that point? What we do know is that researchers are united in their curiosity. What we don't know is the stories behind the curiosity. Let's dive in. Welcome everyone to another episode of the Curiosity Habit. Today I have the pleasure of having with me Dr. Rachel Ellaway, who is the Director of the Office of Health and Medical Education Scholarship at the University of Calgary, as well as the Editor-in-Chief of the Journal Advances in Health Sciences Education, among many other positions that I'm not going to go into for now. One of the things, so first of all, welcome Rachel. Thank you so much for being here today. Well, I'm, I'm intrigued to see what you're doing this. I think it's a great idea and I'm very honored and pleased to help you out with this. Thank you, Rachel. So when I met you for the first time, it was like a few years ago at the Bayfield meeting. And one of the things that I got personally very interested about you is like your ability to think bigger. So for me, when I equate Rachel with something is with a big thinker. And you have been delving in, in topics like um, moral agency, ideology, entropy, and recently the idea that our medical education is simulation. Um, and I, I get that ability to think bigger also as a way to help people think differently. And that's something that I'm very interested in. And my first curiosity is like, what motivates you to take on those big ideas and big topics? Um, that, that's a great question. I mean, it, it isn't sort of something I wake up in the morning and go, right, you know, this topic is big enough, we need to make it bigger and let's go after that. It, it, it is, uh, I think, a fascination with systems. Um, you know, there's that, that wonderful movie, The Sixth Sense, where the kid sees dead people. Well, I see systems. Um, and so when something happens, I don't see the event, I see its connections. Um, and whether that's a state of mind, you know, I, I don't subscribe to learning styles or anything intrinsic, but certainly, you know, my, my education, my early experiences are all tied to connection. And so how, why is this happening? Where, where is its connections? And, you know, where, where are those cascades and, you know, those offstage pieces going on? So I think it's, it is a disposition to look for the bigger picture, look for the sideways picture. What is it? What, what's off camera that, you know, what, what you don't see is, you know, I have my Greek chorus here that are feeding me ideas actually no I don't but you know it, it's the it's the principle in the sense that there's there's usually something else going on um and so it partly it's that partly it is a disposition just look at that that macro piece and how things are connected and I think it's also a, a generous disposition towards it being an academic um which you could also say is a form of ADD in the sense of well I, I'm not going to look at this thing in depth for the next 30 years if there's this whole landscape of really interesting stuff, it's like, well, okay, well, let's go over. Oh no, there's a shiny thing. You know, it's, it's the it's that movie up with the, the dogs that get the you know, rabbit. Well, okay, I have a little bit more self-discipline than that, but not a lot. And so when something new comes up, it is a sense of being able to respond and follow and explore where it may take me. And so I guess it is a mixture of curiosity, disposition, and a general tendency to see the, that bigger picture, whether I will or not. Um, you know, I, I, I'm very impressed by people who do have the focus, who, who, will, who will look at a small piece and do it very thoroughly and very in depth. That's a mark of really good science. I'm not sure whether 
I'm not necessarily always a good scientist because of that bigger picture issue. But, you know, I, I look at people like Checkland and other systems thinkers and think, no, I'm in good company. So, you know, I, I, I think it's, it's a role I can do, something I enjoy, I have a disposition towards, and I find that I do it whether I want to or not. And that's what I find fascinating the other way, because for me, your ability to connect so much of those bigger topics uh, without having to focus on one thing, because when, when you are trying to be a scientist, usually the message you get is like, pick a topic and go deep. And yet you have been able to remain so current in the, in the community and, and get a status in the community by, by thinking widely. So how it has been for you? What kind of, I imagine there has been challenges. Did you have any experiences with challenges in trying to communicate that aspect of being a scientist in a different way? Um, I guess so. Um, I, I wouldn't say I've had anything remotely like a standard career. I mean, nothing, nothing about my journey to here and probably my journey onward is, is, is like really anybody else's. It's not better, it's just different. Mm -hmm. um, and so, you know, I, it's hard to compare. I, I've never been a part of a large center. I've tended to set things up and then move on. Um, and so, it, I, it, you know, that, that sense of, well, this is what the mainstream looks like, or I'm even legitimately part of the mainstream is, 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 is an odd thing to think about. Um, I mean, certainly I've had, you know, people come up to me and say, well, Rachel, are you a quant or a quan? Um, or a qual? And, both, neither, depends, you know, <laughs> you know, which way is the winds blowing and what really what comes down to what the research question is. Um, and so, and I remember, you know, that I ran this uh, a really fun uh, symposium at Amy about five years ago, looking at generalism. And, you know, we had people like Cynthia Whitehead and Joanna Bates and others were part of that, that panel. And it was great. It was a lovely, I mean, the most, most or pretty much all the physician academics were um, from family medicine, which has a disposition to generalism anyway um, and to that end it was a really good conversation but I particularly remember uh, questions from the audience and, and this was David Sklar in particular who was editor of academic medicine at the time and David Irby who's you know had a long time you know, running the center out at UCSF and you know they were going well should, I, I, everything in me is that's telling me that being a scientist is being a specialist the, I know these particular methods or I know this subject I know it really 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 well and yet they also saying, but my heart tells me that yes, as scientists, we have to be generalists because you know, we have to be able to uh, adapt our approaches, our techniques, our experience to, to look at new questions, new problems, new areas of inquiry. And it's that tension, I think, between being a specialist and being a generalist, because it's like you know, you, you're standing in a queue, everybody in front of you is a generalist and everybody behind you is a specialist. But, it, but so your position of which you are is just relative to who's around you rather than being anchored in any absolute sense of whether it's a journalism or not. So I find myself in a community that has quite a lot of specialists and therefore being a generalist is, is, a, is a complementary role. Um, I think that, that is useful and allows me to have perspectives and I enjoy it. And so I, 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 if I had challenges, yeah, I guess, but not in the sense of, you know, I'm, I'm swimming up against the, ri the river as in I should be doing this, but I can't. It's more, well, I'm just not this kind of person. So I'm going to go over there, even though most people are going over here. And so it's more like it's more like a sort of Bach counterpoint rather than it is necessarily a sense of, well, you know, knocking on the door and let me in. No, I'm just not. I don't even want to go in that door. I'm going to go. I'm going to go down the road and do something else altogether. And, and that 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 sense of willingness and 
or recklessness or whatever it is to jump off cliffs actually has been an enabler. And I, again, whether it comes from, I don't know, but it's, 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 it's been a mark of my career and it's worked and I like doing it. I really like how you say that it's not about being right or wrong. It's just being different without any kind of judgment. And you happen to land in a community of a lot of specialists, but you also moved. And I was, I was wondering, as I was reading your CV, you moved from Oxford to Sudbury to Calgary. Uh, I'm not sure many listeners will, will know the story behind. Would you mind sharing with us? Uh, sure. So yeah, the potted history of me. Um, uh, my my father was a, a nuclear weapon. I mean, he's still around, but he, he doesn't work anymore. He was a nuclear weapon scientist. And so in the UK, the, the United Kingdom is one of the na few nations in the world that has uh, overtly got nuclear weapons. It was the third in the world after the States and Russia. Um, and uh, it, my dad, that's what he did. He, he, he was in the army. He, he had a degree in physics. And they recruited him straight out of national service and he worked at a place called Aldermaston. And if you've ever seen any marches, you know, the marches in the 1950s and 60s with um, uh, famous people, uh, AJP Taylor and others, at the front of these marches, that's where they were going to as Aldermaston. Um, and so, you know, I, I, science, I grew up in a household where there was science. You know, you know me and my sister got math problems at the, end, the dinner table. Um, and so science was always there. Um, and you know, when I did, uh, I, I finished high school with math, physics, and chemistry, but I just didn't really like them. I could do them. I didn't really like them all that well. I didn't do very well in my final exams because I didn't care much, frankly. <laughs> um, but when I went to university, uh, I had to do something. I had you know, the, the way the UK system worked then is that you could only go to programs that matched what you did high school. Um, and so to that end, I got into this program, which was one of the very few at the time, which had a combination of, uh, it was like, it's like a North American model where you can take a major and a minor. Because in the UK, and it's still pretty much the case is whatever you do that, you do that, you do hundred percent that you don't, you don't, there's nothing sideways at all. <clears throat> this program I got into was lots of sideways. So I ended up essentially reinventing myself and I did visual studies, which is a mixture of fine arts, graphic arts, bookbinding, typography, all sorts of things like that. So I, I, I you know, my undergraduate training is primarily as a, as a visual artist. And I still do that. You know, I, I have a painting studio. I, I sell my work from time to time. I have various, I've designed, there's a typeface I've designed that's published by Linotype. Um, there's a whole bunch of stuff that's out there. Um, and so I, I kind of have this sort of, you know, this sort of, it's like that, you know, somebody driving down the highway and they just go in the wheel and going. <laughs> Somewhere are you all to, uh, anyway, I did that for a while and I was reasonably successful. Um, I had, you know, some dips where it didn't work out so well, but it, in, by uh, the mid nineties, I was working at the University of Edinburgh um, in their medical illustration department. And that was really the opportunity that, that, that made everything come together because working as a graphic designer, I was then working as the head of, the, I ran the, 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 the digital studio at medical illustration about, 18 months after I started um, and I took us off in a direction where I was starting to get into multimedia because this is this is this is where um, there are programs like authorware and uh, director were now in position it's also very early world wide web um, and so I was you know my my interest and there was a very much a receptive uh, sense from the educative the, the the medical school there is let's explore the use of educational multimedia um, and so by 
about the, the, the this new millennium, about 2000, um, there was this, I was now running this group that was building, we built an electronic curriculum. It was one of the first in the world. And so the entire undergraduate program in medicine, veterinary medicine, uh, dentistry, and then we moved it to law and a few other areas were in the systems that we, that I basically did. I didn't build all of them, I had a team, but we were doing that. And plus I was doing instructional multimedia. I came up with a new program called Labyrinth, which is a choose your own adventure kind of system. And there's a whole range of other things we're doing. And this work was recognized in 2005. We got a prize from, um, uh, as part of the, the honor system in the UK, which meant we went to Buckingham Palace and we met the queen and we got this big oh, wow. And so, you know, I've, that was surreal um, to do that. But, you know, I, and so I met Prince Philip a number of times because he was the he was the chancellor of the university and had some very strange, surreal conversations about virtual patients. Good, but interesting. Um, so that was going on. And also around 2000 is when my, my, my boss had recently just come in and said, well, and he really gave me free rates. He'd like, this sounds good, you should do this. Um, and so I started doing a PhD and that had not been on my uh, radar at all. And he said, you'd be really good at this. I go, you sure? I don't, I'm a designer, I, 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 I build things. I, I don't know yeah. if I could do it. But I, he was right and I it was like coming home. It was, oh, I should have been doing this all along. This is, this is totally me. Um, and so, you know, I, I, I was working in educational technology, I was building things, and I was researching educational technology at the same time. Uh, and this was, this was in Scotland, I was at the University of Edinburgh, and, you know, one of the, the, the there was, the, there, was the, there was, there was a friendly rivalry, it was collegial, but it was also rivalrous between the five or six medical schools in, in Scotland at the time, one of which was Dundee. Um, and Dundee had Ron Harden, and this one was Ron was still working for the medical school, and he was building up the gaming organization. He had a thing called the International Virtual Medical School project that was going on, a whole range of other things that were happening. It was a really exciting, very powerful time to be involved in educational technology, and I kind of, you know, rode, for whatever reason, kind of rose to the top of this, and I was leading things nationally, and without really planning to, it's just like, well, have you ever seen the movie um, uh, The Wrong Trousers? It's one of the Wallace and Gromit movies where there's this big race and oh, the yeah. train's going along and they're putting the track down in front of the train. Yeah. <laughs> I felt like that in the sense of, well, this works and this is going and now I'm doing this and now I'm, this is connected. And now I'm talking to people in the States and I did this and I did that. Um, anyway, it was all going swimmingly. I was, I was, it was, I, the work was going really well and I was kind of transitioning to being an academic rather than just making a complete abrupt change. Um, and so by 2006, you know, I've got, I've got my PhD, I've had the prize from the Queen, doing all these really interesting things. And I was getting itchy feet. I wanted to do something more. I wanted to, you know, spread my wings. And I'd been to Canada a few times. I, I, my first visit to Canada was 2002 for the Amy Conference. I okay. met Ian Hart, who, and he, you know, Ian Hart was a lovely man. He said, well, it'd be great if we could have you in Canada. Could you just come? Um, and I said, well, how do I do that? And he said, well, just come. <laughs> um, and then in 2005, I was back over and, and I, 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 I like one of the things I like, I like lots of things I, I have, but I like traveling by train because there's a lovely slow liminal okay. sense to it. Not like planes, which just, they zip, they're too fast. Trains are slow. Yeah. Um, and so I took the train from Vancouver from one conference to Toronto and then on to Montreal for another conference. And somewhere wow. in the middle of Canada, I thought, 
I would like to live here. I mean, not specifically, you know, rural Saskatchewan, but, you know, somewhere in Canada. And so from 2005, I was really thinking about it. And then that was the year that the Northern Ontario School of Medicine was formed. I had some kind of contacts there. And in uh, 2000, late 2006, they're saying, well, we're, we're going to create a position for uh, assistant dean in educational technology. Would you be interested in what well, oh, sounds quite good? I'll give that a go. And long story short, I interviewed and I got it. And so that was another jumping off the cliff moment. I were, were moved from you know very cosmopolitan Edinburgh to Sudbury, which is was a very very uh, abrupt uh, cultural change. The climate, not not least of the, the, those changes. Um, and so I was uh, I was part of the team. I, I, I arrived a little bit after the school had opened, but I was still part of the team, really building the school up. And I had my struggles there because. It was it was a very different environment, and you know I I was I was a foreigner with a foreign accent, um, you know trying to get the Edinburgh culture to fit to the Nozzle model, and pretty much nothing worked. Yeah, you know, I had to really rethink everything, um, and did I? Uh, you know it wasn't necessarily the easiest process, but it was definitely a constructive one. And then eventually, you know I kind of found my feet and started building things up in Nozzle. Um, I got my citizenship in 2014, so I'm, I'm a proud Canadian, and it was quite an, an intense experience. And uh, I had a sabbatical the year before, did all these wonderful things, and then my feet were getting itchy again. And I thought, no, I really want to take more of a leadership role in education scholarship. And I was talking to various centres, you know, you're interested, you know, we're kind of flirting and dating a little bit, and just, oh. <laughs> and uh, Calgary came up with a position where it was essentially created this new world, a thing that was, it's not called a centre, but it's a centre by any other name. And I thought, oh, that's the interesting go. And I liked the mountains and so on. I got friends out here. So I, again, I interviewed and recklessly and bizarrely, they gave me the position. And so for the last five and a half years, I've been here building things up and, you know, really consolidating a leadership position. I, I mentor a ridiculous number of people you know we we have our, i've built this thing up in in calgary at the same time i've got you know i i, I jeff kind of tapped me on the shoulder and said well yeah i'm about to retire advances you should apply because it wasn't an application process it wasn't they didn't he didn't hand it to me and there, there was their interviews and so on but i got it and now i'm editor of advances and mm -hmm. so that that thing about turning the wheel and kind of scooting across the lane that's still happening at no point of mine not stop crossing lanes i don't know i still don't know where i'm going to end up i suddenly go back to being a painter i don't know but so you know that long story short that's kind of how i got to calgary um and none of it was really planned there was vast volumes of serendipity um but that was really uh, enabled by this willingness just to take chances and do crazy ass things and mm -hmm. here i am it sounds to me like uh, all your journey, which is completely fascinating, I was just so amazed, uh, has been kind of that analogy that you said, turning the, wind, the, the wheel many times in different directions. I was wondering if you were to pick one of those uh, turning of the wheel moments or jumping of the clip moments, which will be the one that have given you the most mem memorable lessons to you? Most memorable lessons they all have um there, there's been so much learning and their learning never stops i mean the only time you learning stops is when you're in a box in the ground so you know that's always there but the, the sea change moment for me was was uh committing to an academic career and starting my phd um i 
it, it, it changed me as a human being. It, it opened up vistas, not just in the sense of, well, now I know this, which I didn't know before, or here's a technique, or here's a bunch of people I'm now talking to. It, it was all of that, but it was a way of thinking about yourself. It, it, it was a form of agency. Um, to some extent, you get to screw around with reality because you can come up with ideas and concepts and theorize things and frame things and construct ideas. I mean, you have to test them, improve them and validate them. And you know, there's an evidential piece there. But the, the, the critical piece altogether was that it changed my outlook on what it was to be a human being and what it was to be somebody who could have a role in the world and make a difference. And so that, 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 that starting the PhD and, then, and seeing that to an end was was a huge huge life experience i mean epiphanies abounded and to that end you know that was the point that if, there, if there's a before and after that's it okay it sounds like it was one of the best decisions you've made and now i want to ask you the other way like what is one decision that you made that didn't turn out the way you had planned but in hindsight it was a good decision to be made i'd say going to nozem that 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 was a struggle Um, uh, partly because it was a, the culture shock was a lot more than I expected. Um, and, you know, I'd, I'd kind of visited Canada and I thought, well, I get Canada, how hard is this going to be? And yet moving to Canada um, and, you know, with no real cultural orientation, not just Canada, but, you know, Northern Ontario was, a, was, was quite a shock, but also it was a shock moving to uh, a, an organization that had such a different culture. Um, Northern Ontario School of Medicine has every reason to be um, a, an extremely positive working environment. It, it has such a clear mission and the mission is such a positive, good one, you know, you know improve the healthcare of Northern Ontario. And yet, you know, in, in, you know, in the early years, it was a very contentious place to work. Um, you know, there was a fast, there was a high turnaround of staff. There was a major destructive strike. Um, there are a whole range of issues that actually made it a very difficult place to work. Um, despite that, that, that common moral commitment to the work of the school. And certainly the work that I went there to do was not what I ended up doing. And it was not a culture that I had really quite appreciated how stressful it was going to be. I mean, in the end, I learned a lot and I, and I don't regret going there one jot, um, but it was certainly a lot more difficult than I had anticipated both socially and professionally to make that change. And it was one that I think took a greater toll on me than I had, that I had appreciated at the time. And I'm really only still kind of deconstructing to actually understand quite what the, the toll was going to get to this point. So, you know, I don't regret it. And there was a lot of learning in it, but it was tough. Yeah. So among those uh, lessons that all of them are really helpful for you to grow, um, what did you think you learned about yourself as a person, not as a researcher, as a person in going through those challenges? Can you share? Uh, yes. Um, Certainly, that 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 I that I have the resilience to to you know dis, and there there is a cost um, in health and so on. I mean I put a ton of weight on you know I I was quite depressed at times and it, and it definitely you know expressed its ways in those kind of things in other in other ways as well and my health wasn't great um, for a lot of reasons um, but the fact that is that despite that. You know, the work was really important and, and I knew that I, and, and committing to the work seemed like the right thing to do at the time. Um, that I know that I can adapt and that even things like that won't really phase me. 
But more importantly, what I really discovered was, is, is to, or rediscover my sense of vocation as, uh, as, as a, social, a social and a moral commitment. I mean, that kind of led into my moral agency work and those kind of arguments, which is the sense of, well, it's not just that you can do interesting things, but you can do things that make things better. And that's, that's almost seems like a trite thing to say because, well, sure. And yet we don't talk about moral agency very much in, in our, as academics. We don't read, say, talk very much about um, uh, the commitment to, to social change and the sense of social responsibility. Even the concept of primum non nocere, first do no harm, is not something we really talk about in graduate education. Certainly wasn't in Edinburgh. Edinburgh was very much a curiosity-driven culture. You want to look at this? Look yourself out. Go look at it. And I'm not saying you shouldn't do that by any stretch of the imagination. But for me, it mattered more. And I found, and I really found myself in research that made a social difference, that made a difference for other people. And so my, if I, you know, my vocation for academics work, which was really kind of awakened and given energy and agency within my, uh, my PhD training, great. But that experience in, in Nozam thinking about, well, how is everybody else's lives better? Am I, am I making, you know, the, I, I, I'm the result of public investments and, you know, that there are, there, are, there are problems out there that people desperately need answers to, then that really changed the direction. You know, I, now I write about social accountability. I talk about uh, the social contract a lot. I, I, I think about things in a very different way because of the, those experiences. And so I think that's, that's the critical part is, to is not just to find my academic heart, but to find my, my, my social, my moral and ethical heart and how the two can actually work together and do really good things, I think is the big difference. Mm -hmm. Totally resonate with you. I'm, I'm playing with this idea of the social responsibility of scientists. And the reason I'm doing this podcast and another podcast that I have is just that responsibility to communicate the stories behind the scientists and the science. So appreciate your candidness with that. I noticed that you have, like, you're a multifaceted individual completely. And I was wondering, um, where do you think you will be if you were not here? I have no idea. <laughs> um, I am quite creative. Um, yeah. I, I, I'm a musician. I'm an artist. I'm a baker. I do a whole bunch. I, I, I do lots and lots of things, and I really enjoy them. So I would hope something creative. Um, uh, but I, so I can think of lots of things I might do, but at the same time, um, there have been lots of jumping off points. You, I, there, people said, well, you know, there's nothing particularly medical about you. Why don't you go do educational technology elsewhere? This is back in the Edinburgh days. You know, you could be anything education technology or education generally, or you know, why not go into this or why not go into that? And yet my heart has really stayed in, 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 in medicine and medical education. Um, so I don't know, it's very hard to think what else I might've done um, I suppose any of the previous jobs, I could still be doing those jobs. I've been an assistant dean. I've managed things. I've done all sorts of things. I mean, that in, in, in previous lives, like I said, I've been a graphic designer and a multimedia designer. I've even been a baker. I've done lots of different things. I ran a, flat, I ran a flower and fruit shop for a while. I mean, I could still be doing all those things. And, you know, okay, the money's not quite so good, but I could still happily be doing those things as long as I'm able to be creative. I'm a, and academia for me is a place where I can be creative. And the things I ended up, when I was running the flower shop, I spent more time making really amazing window displays than I did actually selling the stock. Um, when I was a graphic designer, I spent a lot, a lot of time really on the, the art and the visuals. 
um, you know, at the, I guess I guess it comes back to visual, our visual and creative arts something. As long as I could do that, then what else I was doing wouldn't matter all that much. Oh, wow. Well, it's interesting because we tr try to end the interviews by asking people, what will be one thing that people might not know about you as a person? And you have given me a lot. Is there something else that people might not know, your colleagues might not know about you as a person that makes the researcher you are now? Um... No, I think I've mostly covered it. I mean, I, I'm, the, the way I am researched now is because of all the creative things. And I, I suppose maybe being a jazz musician as well. So, you know, I, I, what you don't see is I have guitars off oh, camera, I've wow. got keyboards and I've got a studio set up downstairs. Um, learning jazz was is something I see very closely to being an academic because essentially you are riffing from a repertoire. Um, and so you're creating something new. They, they, they're one of the things we say is, it's never the same thing once in the same that everything is, is improvised it's new in the moment and that excitement and that energy and all that riskiness is something that I really embraced as a musician and, I, and it feels it feels identical to oh. what I'm doing now what I'm do, when I when I'm presenting when I'm writing and so that ability both to, to improvise and to make something new and to let your heart lead you where what is a good thing if you know, Michelangelo's find the angel in the stone kind of feeling but then to know how to do it with other people so that you are riffing off, that you're listening to that, that improv yes and moment. All of that is also critical there. And so I'd say, you know, it, it's, it's, it's that passion for John Coltrane and, you know, Pat Metheny and uh, Miles Davis and, you know, people like that, um, that really have also just been a, a real anchor in the work that I do. And certainly I feel that are very close very close to the way that I, my, my, my disposition, my poise, my style, if there is one, is kind of from jazz, if it's, if it, rather than anything else. And so I guess that would be it. That's Isn't fantastic. Strong? That's a great analogy. When this, this fascination has started to you and, and how are you able to keep up with those? Uh, I don't know. I, I mean, how do, how do any of us live, live our lives? I live my life the way I live it, and I don't know how else I would do it. Um, I, I listen to music a lot. I play music a lot. I compose. I have two albums on iTunes already. I've got third one about to come out. Oh. Um, I, I, I don't know. I don't, how, how do you do? How do you, I mean, you know, you, you just be yourself. Yeah. I mean, it's that, it's that sort of, it's that, oh, uh, thorough. I think, you know, be true to yourself approach. And that's... Uh, that and live generously and live with spirit and be kind, kinder than you have to be. Those are good ways to live your life. And everything else is just, well, it just kind of falls under my fingers. That's my heart leads me there. I don't know how I do it. How do you, how do you do you? <laughs> I'm very structured thinker. That's why I ask you because I have to play, make structures around me. So obviously every person has the, their own way, but it's just fascinating to me how you lead yourself by your heart which for people like me is harder. <laughs> I'm, I'm less that person, but, but I, that's why I like these conversations because it makes me see the perspective of a different way of doing things. So I do appreciate you sharing with us your story. Um, for sure, I'm going to look into your music because I had no idea you composed. So I mean, I'm going to look into that. I hope the listeners will as well. Thank so you, you so much, Rachel. You won't find me as Rachel Ellaway. Yep. You'll find me as Remedy, R-H-E-M-A-D-E. Um, that's my stage name. So that's where you'll find me.
Okay, perfect. We'll make sure to add that information in the description of the episode. Thank you, Rachel. It was a pleasure talking to you today. Likewise, good luck with this. I think it's a great series. I love what you're doing with this. So thank you. This has been The Curiosity Habit. This podcast is hosted by Saira Cristancho and produced by Monica Molinero. You can find all our episodes on podcast apps like Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever else you listen to podcasts. Thanks for listening.